I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12. You know, there's a question that's been faced by Christians of every time, of every place, throughout the ages. Throughout history, every true follower of God, no matter when and where they lived, has had to reckon with this question. Here's the question. How do we live as the people of God in a world that doesn't honor him? It's a question I hope that you've wrestled with to some degree. Here we are as God's people, as citizens of the kingdom of God, and yet we're also living in this city, right? In this state, in this country, we're citizens of this land. And so there should be this tension, this ever-present question. How do we live as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God and also as faithful citizens of this community, of this country that God has placed us in? Like I said, it's not a new question. Stephen alluded to it well. It's a, it's a question as old as time, asked throughout the generations. But let's be, be honest that for some, answering this question has been easier than for others, right? For many of us, if not most of us, answering this question is necessary but not costly. What I mean is that for us to live as faithful citizens, both of the kingdom of God and as citizens of this country, for the most part, we've not had it too difficult. For most of our history, we've been in a place where even the law supported our efforts to be faithful to Christ. Not to say there's not points of difficulty, but we've been fortunate. There are other places other times when it's been much harder. There are places today, as we speak, where if you live as a faithful citizen of the kingdom of God, you will be in direct contradiction and opposition to the culture that you're in. For some, choosing to be a faithful citizen of the kingdom of God means not knowing whether or not you'll have a job tomorrow. Not knowing whether or not you'll be able to provide for your family. For some, living as a truly faithful citizen of God's kingdom means a matter of life or death. It's not something we have to worry about too much, is it? But our culture's changing. What's viewed as culturally acceptable and unacceptable is different today than it was 10 years ago. Increasingly, there are even laws that make it harder and harder for us to be both faithful citizens of the kingdom of God and faithful citizens of this land. There are things we have to consider, things we must wrestle with. Will we be obedient to God or will we be obedient to those in authority over us here? There's a tension. And I know some of us, Maybe we could spend too much time in the news or too much time on social media, and we may think we have it worse than anyone else ever has before, and we would be wrong. But we should have our eyes open. It's not new, though. It goes back to the time of Christ. During the time of Christ, the Jewish people were living under the rule of Rome. They were living in a land that God had given them, but... They were ruled over by the Roman government. 
And to, to, to put it mildly, the Roman government did not care for the Jewish faith. When Jesus was born, the emperor was Caesar Augustus, a man who is known not only as a king, but for seeing himself as a god. He considered himself divine. And he was hostile towards anyone who would take allegiance away from him. Jesus was born under the reign of Caesar Augustus, and after he passed, still during the time of Christ, Caesar Tiberius, his son, came to power, and the apple didn't fall far from the tree. He was equally proud and hostile. Needless to say, it created a situation where those who desired to be faithful to God were forced to make difficult decisions. Do we submit to Caesar? Or do we submit to God? Now, it may seem like a black and white question with a black and white answer. But things aren't always black and white, are they? In particular, one of the questions that was hotly debated was this. Do we pay taxes? Now, of course, the Jewish people, they, they, they're not opposed to taxes in general. They had their own system of taxes and offerings. But now they're living under Roman rule. And here's the tension. Do we pay taxes to a wicked and godless emperor? This man mocks God, even claims to be God. The question is, should the people of Israel pay taxes to that kind of a man? And as you can imagine, among the people of God, there was a variety of opinions. There was a large contingency of people who were convinced they should not participate. But there were others, especially those who were striving for peace or political gain, who argued the tax should be paid. It was a debated topic. And that's the topic that comes up here in Mark chapter 12. But we shouldn't just jump in and just talk about the topic because it is in a context, isn't it? We've been walking through. So let's, let's remember where we are here in the flow of the gospel of Mark. It's the week leading up to the, the death of Christ. This is Passion Week. So over the past month, we've seen the triumphal entry, the clearing of the temple. And over the past two weeks, we've seen these interactions between Jesus and those who wish to get rid of him. There's these men who hate Jesus. They don't believe who he claims to be. They see him as a threat, and they are committed to silencing him. So what we've been seeing is that they're trying to build their case. They're trying to get a consensus. They're trying to get a crowd of people who would stand with them in opposition to Jesus. So as he's in the temple courts, as he's in public, they're bringing questions to him, hoping that he will say something that will bring opposition from the crowds. They're trying to trap him. But I hope you've seen the trend that's been happening. He knows their schemes and he won't be trapped. They come to him with a question over and over. We've seen him turn it back on them where they're the ones that feel trapped. They're the ones back on their heels. And yet, even when Jesus continues to get the best of them, they keep coming. This time with the question of taxes. Should the people of God pay taxes to Caesar? And what we're going to see this morning is this back and forth. Now, spoiler alert, Jesus will not be rattled by their attempts of manipulation. And what we also get 
is this really practical teaching for us to consider. What is the role of government? What does it mean to live in submission to the government and in submission to God? Are these things opposed to one another? Things that we should consider and things that Jesus helps us think through here. So in Mark chapter 12, we're going to consider verses 13 to 17. So I hope you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true. And that you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. But truly teach the way of God. So here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one and they said to him, Excuse me, he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, it's Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the preaching of his word. Again, if you've been with us, you've seen this back and forth. Jesus is in the temple court, and there's these waves of people coming to him, the Pharisees, the, Sa- the, the Sanhedrin, trying to oppose him. But they can't seem to get any upper ground. In fact, what we saw last week was Jesus announcing judgment against them, reminding them that God's wrath will come against those who oppose him. We've seen the wickedness of their hearts. But Jesus is calling them to repentance, and yet they keep pushing forward. Now as we come, we see another delegation that's come, another posse come to confront Christ. Verse 13, the Pharisees and the Herodians are sent to him to trap him in his talk. Now, I won't spend long here, but what you should know is that this is an unlikely um, partnership. You probably are familiar with the Pharisees. It's this religious group who've, who've come against Jesus time and time again, claiming to stand for, for the law, for the truth, for what's right. Then there's the Herodians. The Herodians are more of a political group. See, Herod was placed by Rome over the people of God, and the Herodians see themselves as the bridge between the Jews and the government. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't get along, but here they have a common enemy. They're united in their hatred against Christ. So they come together, and it's no secret that their goal is to discredit him, to turn the people against him. They want people to hate Jesus, to oppose him. And yet, they don't want their intentions to be known. They want to be seen as honest, fair questioners. So did you see the way that they approach Jesus? They come to him with this flattery and this fake portrayal of honor. 
Verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. You truly teach the way of God. Now, they're saying right things, but things they don't believe. They don't believe that Jesus speaks for God. They don't believe the things he says are true. And yet he has proven this, that he's going to say what he believes no matter the outcome. They say, you don't care about anyone's opinion. And in English, what that sounds like is that Jesus is hard-hearted or he lacks compassion. No, this is about his integrity. They're acknowledging that Jesus doesn't waffle. He doesn't say what wins him the most votes or appeals to the largest crowds. Jesus says what's true, no matter what. They were trying to flatter him. They were trying to make themselves look good, but they said true things, didn't they? They rightly identified the integrity and the character of Christ. As a side note, shouldn't that be the kind of people that we desire to be? I wonder if you'd say this is true of you. That you're willing to stand for what's true no matter the cost. That you're going to do what's right no matter the fallout. I alluded to it earlier. We're living in a time and a place where if we stand for what the Bible says, we may be opposed. More and more, the teaching of the Bible are seen as unacceptable by the world. It's not popular to suggest that people are sinners in need of a Savior. It's not acceptable by many to believe that there's only one way to heaven and that all those who reject that one way will experience eternal wrath. We could go down a long list. It's not politically correct to believe that God designed sexuality and that the scriptures reveal its proper use. Or that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman for one life. Life begins at conception. We could go down all of the list, couldn't we? If we believe the scriptures more and more, we're going to be at odds with the world around us. So the question becomes, are we willing to stand for what's right no matter the cost? no matter the fallout? These are questions we must answer. What we see here is Jesus, and they admit he's not swayed by popular opinion. He will say what's true, even if it's countercultural, even when it costs him his life. So what we see here. <clears throat> is that the Pharisees and the Herodians are trying to paint themselves as honest questioners, but we know that's not the case. They're trying to trap him, and we see the trap in verse 14. It comes in the form of a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them, or should we not? And like I already said, this is a, a relevant question. This is a question people were asking but it's asked with deceitful intent. The Jews are living under Roman rule. The Roman government is wicked. It's an important question. Should the people of God pay taxes to a godless emperor? It's timely and complex, and there are a variety of opinions. <coughs> Excuse me. There were the extremes. There's always the extremes, aren't there? 
In this case, they were the zealots. The zealots were the ultra-conservatives. We may call them the religious purists. So they would say something like this. This would be their, their mantra. We serve God and God alone, and we will never submit to another authority. Face value, that sounds really good, doesn't it? But the question is, does paying taxes to Rome mean we're being unfaithful to God? Right? So they would say, we're faithful to God, but what they're implying is that paying taxes isn't. The zealots argued, we must not submit to anyone but God, and that means we will not pay. Then there's the Pharisees, and they're somewhere in the middle. They're conflicted. They don't like it, but they feel like maybe it's the best thing to do. Then there's the Herodians. These are the more political. They believe that certainly we must pay. These are all Jews, and yet we see at least three opinions, and if there's three, there's probably seven, right? Different groups. And you don't have to remember those groups, but the point is that this wasn't a black and white issue. And so this is a trap. See, the Pharisees and the Herodians know we ask this question, no matter which way he answers, we win and he loses. If he says that we should pay taxes to Caesar, a huge percentage of Jews are going to be enraged. And if they can get the masses to turn against him, they've won. On the other hand, if Jesus says that they should not pay taxes, well, that's proof that this is a man who's against the government. We'll make a call to Rome and tell them they've got an insurrection on their hands. So either they can raise up the Jews against Christ or they can raise up the Roman government against Christ. Whichever way he answers, they say, gotcha. But they forgot who they're dealing with. Jesus doesn't get gotcha. He starts, we see his response there in verse 15. And what he does first is he points out their hypocrisy. He's not fooled by their flattery. He's not caught off guard by their question. He knows their hearts and he calls them out. Mark says, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Now that word test, you should know, is the same word that we see back in Mark chapter 2 when Satan comes to test or to tempt Jesus. It's a word that comes with the goal of destroying. They've come not to ask an honest question. They've come to destroy. Jesus knows it. And he calls them out. And as I've thought about this, Jesus, hearing what they said but knowing their hearts, I ask myself the question and I will ask you the same question. Do you think you're smarter than God? Over and over we see these guys who think they can manipulate Jesus to back him into a corner. He was never fooled. We may not do it that blatantly, but I wonder how often we think we can justify certain things or try to twist or manipulate the true words of Scripture to fit our own desires. 
all of us have a little bit of the Pharisees and the Herodians in us, don't we? It's a blunt question, but I think it's a question worth considering. Do you think you're smarter than God? Can I remind you, he knows your heart. Jesus knew what these men were trying to accomplish. He saw right through it. He knew they were trying to get their own way instead of submitting to him. So he calls them out. He points out their hypocrisy. And then, then he gets to answering the question. He starts with an object lesson. Some of you wish I used more object lessons. Jesus calls for some crowd participation. He says, hey, go get me a denarius. So they go and they bring back a denarius. Well, what is that? Denarius, it was a silver coin. It was worth about as much as an average uh, laborer's day wage. Okay? So for the guy who works out in the field, who does manual labor, at the end of the day, he'd get a denarius. So not life-changing money, but significant. Let me tell you what it looks like. On one side of the coin was an image of Caesar, probably at this time Caesar Tiberius. And on that side, beside or around the, the picture of Caesar, was the inscription, Son of Augustus the Divine. I told you earlier, he believed that he was, in fact, a god. On the other side, there was an inscription that said, High Priest. See, he wasn't only claiming supreme political power. He was claimed to be the supreme religious ruler. He wanted it all. So you can see why maybe the Jews were hesitant to participate in a tax that was paid with this coin. Go back to the story. We see Jesus asked for the coin, and when he gets it, he asks the question, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, it's Caesar's. And based on the response, Jesus offers his answer to the question. Do you remember the question? Should we pay taxes or should we not? Jesus said to them, verse 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. A two-part answer, and not at all what the Pharisees and Herodians anticipated. Here they are asking what they think is an either-or question, A or B. But Jesus responds in a way they didn't expect. He won't be gotcha You can use that. I made it up, but you can have it. <laughs> Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And just in my own imagination, I wonder if he paused there. And if for just a split second, they thought we've got him. Right? He's saying pay Caesar. But he doesn't stop there. He gives that second part. Render to God the things that are God. It's one sentence, two parts. And whether you know it or not, he has completely destroyed the strategy of his opponents. And at the same time, he's helped us to consider what does it look like to honor the authority given to us here and the authority of God. So let's look at it more carefully. First, what does it mean to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's? Well, in this case, if we just look at this particular case, the logic's pretty simple. Caesar's image is on the coin. His face is on it. Give it to him. Right? 
Seems simple, but Jesus is actually saying something very significant. He's acknowledging there is a place for human government. That to submit to human government doesn't automatically mean a lack of submission to God. Let me say that again. To submit to human government does not automatically mean a lack of submission to God. This ruled out a whole category of those who said we must not submit. Something that's worked out pretty thoroughly in other parts of the New Testament. That the apostles make it clear that God intends for government to have a role. To have a measure of authority. There are duties and responsibilities that they have that we are to submit to that don't infringe on our allegiance to God. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Romans chapter 13, Paul says this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. That's pretty clear, isn't it? For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist here have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, get this, resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Skip down to verse 5. He says, Therefore, we must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Some of you wish you didn't come this morning, huh? The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And by the way, he's talking about government still there. That there is a measure of respect that should be given. And a measure of honor. I think this helps us understand a little bit about what Jesus says when he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. You know, when Jesus was here in the temple court, Peter was there with him. I wonder how Peter interpreted the teaching of Jesus. We can go to Peter's first epistle. He says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good. This is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the emperor. Peter and Paul are fleshing out what Jesus says in Mark 12. And consider this. Their government wasn't very kind. Right? This is Rome. This is an emperor who said, I'm God. Jesus says it. Paul says it. Peter says it. Honor the emperor. The same is true for us. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? There's more to the teaching. He says this second, render to God things that are God's. And I think we should acknowledge there's some irony here because what we believe is that there's nothing in the entire universe that's not his. Ultimately, everything, even if it has someone else's picture on it, belongs to him, right? He made it all, all of it's his. But that said, God allows these other authorities to exist. He appoints governments and rulers. 
But I think what we see is that the second part of the verse is a recognition that our greatest allegiance, our greatest submission is to God first. Which means a couple of things. A coin may be inscribed with the image of another person. But every person who's been created is marked with the image of God. Which is to say we belong to him. And he's the one who should receive our ultimate worship and our ultimate allegiance. You are the thing that belongs to God. So offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Now, am I talking out of both sides of my mouth? Was Jesus talking out of both sides of his mouth? How can we submit fully to God and also to government? Here's the key. We submit to those who are over us not because of who they are, because submitting to them is an act of living in obedience to God who's given them authority. One pastor said it this way, and I appreciated this, so I'll just repeat it. He said, all our earthly allegiances are not warranted, not, excuse me, are not only warranted by supreme authority of God, but also limited and shaped by his authority. That's what I get when I try to use someone else's words, not my own. Let me say it again. All our earthly allegiances are not only warranted by the supreme authority of God, he gave them to us, right? But also they are limited and shaped by his authority. And I think that's clarifying. It means we have to hold these two statements side by side. And by doing so, we see that we should never submit to an authority that causes us to live in a way that compromises our allegiance to God. Our hearts are his. Our allegiance is to him. So we submit to those whom he's allowed to be over us to the extent that it does not compromise our allegiance to him. Now, have I just made assumptions here? What I'm trying to do is say, how do we render to Caesar and also render to God? Have I gone too far? That's a fair question. Well, consider what happens in Acts chapter 5. Peter is proclaiming the name of Christ, and he's arrested. So the ruling authority of that day tells him, you must not speak in the name of Christ. So what does Peter do? I'll read it for you. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them, Peter and John, before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you are, filling Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, speaking of Christ. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Now, isn't Peter the one who says, Honor the emperor? So do you see how we get this clarification? Our allegiance to God governs our allegiance to authorities that he's placed. We could, we could go through all kinds of scenarios and situations. Here's the heart of it. We honor God by honoring those in authority, yet God must always be supreme. We obey him first. Jesus says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render to God those that which is God's. And again, we see Jesus has put his opponents on their hills. They came ready to be trapped, but he cannot be trapped. Now, with that said, I've said over and over, he can't be gotcha he can't be trapped. Let's get this on the table. 
that just a few days after this conversation, Jesus would be arrested. He would be tried and he would be crucified. Those who hated Jesus would stand up and say, we did it. But even then, what we know is Jesus has not been trapped. This is why he came. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down freely. He came to be rejected. He came to die. He came to be the sacrifice for sin. Even in his death, he was accomplishing his will. And he didn't remain in the grave. He rose again, accomplishing our salvation. And I say all that to say this. Right now, we live in this world and we live with imperfect human authorities. Right now, we live in a time and place where there are many who will reject the truth and hate us for standing for it. If we remain true to the word of God, we may face opposition and even persecution. But this is our hope. Jesus was not trapped. He lives. And we will live with him. There's more beyond this life. And so while for now we are citizens of this world, we are also eternal citizens of the kingdom of God. And he's promised that all who trust in him will live and reign with him forever. And so there will be times where if we live in obedience to God, we will be opposed by governments, co-workers, family, neighbors. But any suffering we experience now for honoring God, when God is the one to be honored, will be worth it. So we go back to the question we began with. How do we live as the people of God in a world that doesn't honor him? I think the answer is we honor him no matter the cost. At times, honoring him means submitting to wicked rulers. I'll say it again. At times, honoring Christ means submitting to wicked rulers. And at times, it means we cannot submit and we must accept the consequences. But in all, God is glorified as we worship him with pure hearts. So this is where we need wisdom. May God give us wisdom as we seek to honor him and to live both as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God and faithful citizens of the land where we've been placed.